0: it's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to bring you the word. And uh, in some ways, I look at this text as uh, the near conclusion of a sermon series I began in 2006 or something like that. Uh, And um, I'll let you know that there's a good chance that we may hear some of the rest of that series later on during uh, Pastor Todd's sabbatical that's coming up. Uh, I love preaching on Samuel. I love preaching on David And the notes are here to keep me from talking about David too much, uh, because I could keep going. Um, In a surprise move about 2,000-plus years ago, one of the greatest men, at least by worldly standards, made a decision that would change the planet. Instead of choosing the obvious choice, This man chose a relatively scrawny guy uh, who uh, was not a great soldier, who was not uh, particularly uh, great in the mind of many people around him, but Gaius Julius Caesar made the decision not to go with Marcus Antonius, the great soldier and very popular guy uh, who was a seasoned veteran and a loyal ally, but Caesar made a decision To choose as his heir uh, young Octavius who was a bit young, probably a little too young, probably a little too inexperienced, too sickly, uh, possibly asthmatic uh, for many people to take seriously. Uh, And yet we know that Octavian became Caesar Augustus. And the choice that Julius Caesar made because he saw a little bit of himself in uh, Octavius, changed the face of the world such that the Roman Empire came into fullness, that the peace of Rome extended at least around the Mediterranean, that the Roman Empire would be established in such a way that it would last for hundreds of years. And I don't know what the world would look like if Marcus Antonius had been chosen instead of uh, Caesar Augustus, but I'm sure the world would be different. In a similar way, I'm sure absolutely no one expected God to choose David. Uh, The first time a king was chosen uh, for Israel by God, it was to make a point The people of Israel had asked for a king like every other nation. They said, we want a king like the other nations. And God said, fine. I'll give you a king just like those other nations, king. We'll see how you like that. Uh, And then we'll be in touch. And uh, Saul came around, and Saul was tall and good-looking, and tall and good-looking, And that's about it. He started out timid. And before long, he was taking matters into his own hands, making sacrifices when he wasn't supposed to, uh, doing things only priests should do, uh, cutting corners around the requirements of God and blaming his men. And he was rejected by God. And Samuel is told go to the family of Jesse. And so the seven sons of Jesse line up, and with each one, uh, Samuel thinks, this is the guy. He looks kingly. And by the end, we learn there are eight sons. And this one is the runt, and he's out with the sheep. And uh, we really didn't take seriously the idea that you would... David, so he's out there. And I want you to just imagine for a moment that the next president of the United States was a pizza delivery boy who was quickly exalted through the ranks. Not become CEO of a company, but really. What was your last job? I delivered pizzas. Uh, how are you qualified? Uh, um. And of course, God was with David, and we see through Samuel that God uses David as a savior king, and David follows after God uh, with his whole heart, at least sometimes, and we see that at other times, David follows after his own heart uh, with passion. But all in all, David is called by God a man after his own heart. He's a poet king who wrote at least 70 of the psalms and there's a sincerity and a gentleness to David as king that in his best moments demonstrate the character of God and reflect God so well. And yet we know also perhaps the most famous or second most famous stories of David is the story of Bathsheba. When He should have been out with war, uh, with his uh, soldiers at war, but instead he was home and saw Bathsheba and committed adultery and lied about it and murdered one of his closest friends and allies and covered it up. And yet, God didn't give up on David. David. The first question I have for us is What is the covenant with David? Now, in our text today, we see that David earnestly desires to thank and honor God. Uh, At this point, David has been through a lot. He has been chased, he has pretended to be insane to avoid capture, he has lost his family and regained his family. He has seen his friend Jonathan killed. He has been uh, the target for a spear by King Saul repeatedly. And yet, by this time, God has brought at least relative stability. Uh, David has had victory, and he's able, maybe for the first time in a while, to sit back and think. And he's sitting on his throne like kings do all day long, uh, ruling over his kingdom and eating cake, maybe. Uh, Probably not. Uh, But uh, David is able to think, and he's looking around, and he's living in a beautiful palace made of cedar, and he's reflecting on the idea that God his house of worship, is in the tabernacle. A tent made of animal skins, albeit beautiful, but a bit temporary and certainly not as glorious by the world's standards as a temple. And David sends to the prophet Nathan and says, see now, I live in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And this bothers David, and he wants to do something about it. And Nathan figures it's a good idea. Uh, I can't see anything wrong with it. David, God's with you. Go do it. Except God surprises Nathan and says, actually, no. Uh, You can tell David this. You want to build me a a house? No, I'm going to build you a house or a dynasty. Now, we might expect God to say, it's about time. Uh, Why didn't you think of this earlier? But God doesn't do that. In fact, he says, look, this has been fine. Uh, I'm not in a tabernacle because of neglect or because of anything else. That That was my plan. Uh, God doesn't say, David, here are the plans. You'll write them down, uh, and this is what the, how, what the temple's going to look like. He does that later. Instead, God throws David a curveball and does some very, very unexpected, unnecessary, over-the-top, wonderful things. Now, there are a couple levels to the promise of David that make this a complicated and really wonderful promise. At the first level is the earthly level that God will raise up one of David's sons to be king after him. Now that alone is a great thing to hear. David uh, may have wondered, Saul was rejected, will, will I mess up? Uh, God had told Saul that none of his line would be king. But David is told, you're going to have a son who's going to be king. And Second Samuel 12 to 13 of our text says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, on one level, we know the story. Bathsheba has a child. The first one dies. But the second one, they named Solomon. Solomon grows, asks God for wisdom. God gives him wisdom and riches. Uh, And Solomon builds the temple uh, with, by the way, billions of dollars of gold. If If you study it, David set aside about a billion dollars plus of gold for the temple. Uh, But then there's another level to this promise. It's not just that Solomon will get to be king. And it's hinted at already in verse 13. This, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, God was in the habit in the Old Testament of smashing a lot of ideas into one word. Um, And we see this a number of times. One example is when God says things like, this will happen in the day of the Lord. God doesn't mean just one day. Uh, God means a very long period of time that includes events in uh, Israel and Judah in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, in the church age, uh, on into the second coming of Jesus in glory. And when you study the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, you see that this is not just one day and that they don't all happen on the same day. Uh, so, too, Paul talks about the offspring of Abraham being made in the singular to one offspring, that is Jesus, whereby we're all blessed. And I think we see the same kind of thing here, that we are told that David's offspring will be sitting on the throne forever. To put it plainly, the Messiah, the Savior King, will come through the line of David but this is the first time we really hear that there's going to be a savior who's also a king. We do have promise of someone who would smash the head of the serpent. Abraham is promised that he will be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, Abraham, uh, sorry, And then here, that's made more specific. I'm going to establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And because God utters that last word, the entire character of the promise is changed in a way that sends ripples throughout the rest of history, throughout the rest of God's interaction with his people. And the rest of the Bible is filled with allusions to the kingship of David, to the rod of Jesse, to the root of Jesse, to the branch, to a child being born where the government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, The Bible is full of it. The second question I'll be answering is why? Why do this? There are so many simpler Adam or simpler answers that God could have given David. He could have said, Thanks, David, I appreciate that. Uh, he could have said just a simple no, the tabernacle's fine. Or he could have just said, Look, you're a man of war, as we hear in another text. I'd like a man of peace to make it, so I'm going to have Solomon build the temple, and that's going to be great. Instead, God picks the run who was following behind sheep, makes him great, and now he's going to make him even greater. God refuses, at least for the time being, God's gesture, but God exalts David to about the highest place you can be without actually being the Messiah. I mentioned Caesar earlier, and... Caesar adopted Octavius. Here we have God not adopting David quite, but rather the other way around. God inserting himself into David's family. And we look when we look at why God did this, I think the answer we get is an overabundant outpouring of love. It's unnecessary. God didn't need to do it. God could have had the promises of Abraham come to pass some other way. But God loved David. And God loved his son. And so we see this interesting twist that the love of the father for the son is brought into time and space through the line of David. John 3, 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything into his hands. It's worth dwelling on that for a moment, that because of the promise to David, the son of God, God the son, becomes human, lives among us, becomes one of us, and will never stop doing that. Uh This is absolutely remarkable. Because God loved us, because God loved David, because God loved his son, God loved himself, we get to participate in that love. Well, how does that play out? Uh, If you know your Old Testament a little bit, uh, or even if you don't, uh, David Make some mistakes. I mentioned that earlier. We have David and Bathsheba, uh, David making a mess of his role as, as king, utterly failing, committing crimes that were punishable by certainly something close to impeachment or being thrown off the king uh, off the throne. According to the Old Testament, he should have been stoned to death. God took away his sin. But this would have been the perfect excuse for God to say, look, David, I made you a promise, and you did this. Why'd you do that, David? I gave you all this. Look, I know I said I would bless you, but you blew it. I'm going to have to go with someone else. Now, there is a conditional aspect to this promise that we see play out, and it's expressed in 1 Kings 2.24, uh, where David is on his uh, deathbed, and, uh, and we hear this. If your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness, With all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. So what does this mean? Is this God taking something back? Is this a problem? Well, the wickedness of David and the wickedness of Solomon and the worst wickedness of Rehoboam and the wickedness of Manasseh that I'll just talk about in a moment Is this going to unravel the promise? And the answer is no. There is a conditional element that individual sons of David, individual descendants, uh, will sit on the throne. And if they're obedient to God and if they follow after God, God will bless them and they will remain king. If they don't, then God will remove them. But he's not going to cut off David's line. He's going to bring up one of their sons, one of uh, that king's sons. So what we see really here as we dig deeper is that the wickedness highlights God's faithfulness. Let me tell you what I mean by that. We see it start somewhat with David, but we see it more with Solomon, that Solomon falls away from following God with his whole heart. You may know that Solomon had many, many, many wives and concubines, around a thousand, and that he built pagan temples to keep these wives happy, happy, and it seems that he went along with it. And God appears to Solomon and says, Look, because you've done this, uh, I'm going to take away the kingdom. From you, and act the the split of the ten tribes from the tribe of Judah uh, happens because of this. But I'm not going to take the kingdom away from you like I did with Saul, and I'm not going to do it in your day. I'm going to do it in the day of your son Rehoboam. Now Solomon's son Rehoboam is worse, and so on and so forth, with a few bright spots. And then you get an amazingly wicked king of Judah. In Second Chronicles 33, 1 through 7, we read this. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began t- to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father, Hezekiah, had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asherahs, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, in the temple, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall be my name forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and, dwelt and, excuse me, and dealt with mediums and with wizards. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. David's descendants sometimes often went off the deep end and followed after paganism in a way that was despicable. But God was faithful. Had the promise, had the covenant ultimately rested with David, things would not be good. Uh, Israel would have certainly been wiped out. Uh, The line of David would have ended. Salvation, maybe it would have come. It's difficult to think about what God would have done otherwise. But God kept his promise to Abraham, and keeping his promise to Abraham meant that he was going to bring salvation and he kept his promise to David. And instead of wiping out the line of David, instead of leaving us to our own fate, he brought his son. And so we have this <clears throat> in Hebrews ten nineteen to 23. Therefore, my brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, For he who promised is faithful. Brothers and sisters, God was faithful to David in such a way that nothing could break that promise. And that brings us to the really great news that God sent Jesus, born of a woman, through the Holy Spirit, of the line of David and that the son of David died for us and the son of David was raised for us and sits now at the right hand of the father on David's throne. And Jesus is king forever. And the world may be a mess, but God is committed to his promise to David, to his promise to the world, the promise to us. Now this can seem uh, difficult to wrap our minds around when we look around and we see things like Syria, we see things like uh, the mess in Iraq, we see things like the mess in our own country, where morality seems to be crumbling, where shooting is... Uh, becoming more, more and more common at schools. And we read this in Psalm 2. And I'm going to read the whole Psalm, and I want you to listen for, on one hand, the mess of the world, and on the other hand, the promise to David's son. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them picture we have in this psalm is the promise to David unfolding, that God has set his king on Zion in Jerusalem, on the throne of David, and the whole earth belongs to that king. And that king is going to make everything right. As well as making all things right, there is news of salvation for us as individuals, Paul preached to the Jews in Acts 13, verses 36 to 39. He says this, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man... That is Jesus. Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Brothers and sisters, the promise of God is not only that Jesus is seated on David's throne, but that through Jesus we sit with Jesus on thrones that we are saved from sin and death and raised up and paul in ephesians 4 4 to 7 spells out what it means to be saved but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That is, being seated with Christ means we reign with him. We become his heirs we become adopted sons and daughters of the great high king. What do we do with this knowledge? The first is to recognize, as Psalm 2 said, kiss the son lest he be angry. The good news is salvation is free. That God sent his son to die for you so that It wouldn't be your faithfulness or David's faithfulness or any other human's faithfulness other than Jesus who gives salvation. We are told to believe, to believe in Jesus, and we will be saved. Now, there is also great comfort. You might be wrestling with sin. You might be wrestling with depression Or with a feeling that uh, God is distant. God kept his promise despite Manasseh murdering his sons in pagan worship. My sin, your sin, which is great, which is threatening if we don't bring it to Jesus, is powerless against the promises of God. Jesus is king and he smiles on you. Let that be encouragement. Let that give you joy and peace. And may we glorify our God in heaven because of it. Please pray with me.